Welcome to Troubadours on Trek. This is your captain speaking, Grace Pettis. I'm a big star. Trek fan. I'm also a working musician and a songwriter. I review episodes of Star Trek with other musicians and music industry professionals. We share an episode of the greatest science fiction series of all time. And they share their songs and road stories with us. New fandom is created. Our Spotify playlist, Like the Universe, continues to expand. Guys, guys, we're being hailed. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode, another thrilling episode of Troubadours on Trek. My guest this time is the Americinda songwriter, Texas-based artist Natalie Price. That is her term for it, Americinda. Did I've, you did you coin that? I didn't. I definitely stole it from someone else, and I really enjoy using it. I really enjoy thievery. It's you know. I mean, it's so inclusive. <laughs> it is inclusive. I like it. Americinda. Um, yeah. So uh, Natalie has had her music featured by NPR. She's performed in songwriting festivals and contests around the globe, including right here in Ireland, where we are recording today's podcast. That's true. Yeah. You should tell us um, tell us about Ireland a bit. When was the first time that you came to this country? I came for the first time in 2018 for the Tipperary Song of Peace contest, and I was very excited to be here because technically, if you believe DNA tests, it's the motherland. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So, and uh, somehow in the middle of October, I got sunburned, so I think that that holds up. (laughs) So that's proof. (laughs) Uh, But all pretty much all the people came from this climate. (laughs) Apparently. Yeah. Um, But, you know, everything, all the Guinness, all the food, everything, I was like, this all sits really well with me. I like this. This This is all working for me. (laughs) I was like, where has this place been all my life? Oh, Oh, right here. Yay. Oh, I'm glad you're loving it. Um, we are definitely wearing multiple layers, though, because um, this house is a bit chilly, a bit drafty. It's true. And we're um, sipping tea in true Irish style. Yeah, we are sipping tea. We kind of drink multiple cups of tea a day here. This is cup four for me. Yeah, I think this is three for me. Um, and it's only like, what, two o'clock or something. So mm-hmm. there you go. Um, we're actually in my mom's closet. <laughs> right Which now. is the size. You could definitely put a bed in here. It'd be a little yeah. tight. Yeah. But- she lives in a very cool um, historic home, and it's kind of a unique rental situation for those of you listening, where um, it's sort of like an amazing house that you, it's sort of a once-in-a-lifetime once opportunity to live in a place like this, but also because it's like a historic house, it's like, you know, there's single-pane glass, glass on the windows, and um, it's not heated super well. There's no, like, central heating, you know, so... Um, yeah, but like cool things like old boarded up fireplaces and like really 12 tall. foot high ceilings. Yeah, exactly. Original so. wood doors and handles, probably. Yeah. With the little like thing that swings over the keyhole so you can't see into the room. Right. Yeah, totally. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Totally are those here. Yeah. Um, the rooms, because they're so tall and kind of cavernous, they don't necessarily lend themselves well to. Uh, podcast recording but which is why we've chosen the closet (laughs) it is the smallest space and it's full of clothes so hopefully that will help with isolating sound but yeah um 
It's kind of cool. So tell us why you're here at my mom's house. It's Thanksgiving break, right? Yes. Um, and uh, I'm kind of in like a transitional time as well where I'm sort of working toward becoming transatlantic since my mom is here permanently now and she's a citizen and, you know, she will eventually retire on this side of the Atlantic. So I figure I need to need to build up some fan base over here and um, and you're here visiting, yeah? Here visiting or to help you transition, whatever that job description looks like. <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> and, of whiskey. <laughs> and uh, well, not as much as I would have thought actually so far. Yeah, um, we could up that. <laughs> we should actually. Um, but you can actually order a hot toddy over here if you were thinking about coming maybe over the winter. For those of you listening, uh, that is understood when you order a hot toddy. Although they call it a hot whiskey. Some people like also know what hot toddy, you know, it's the same thing, but they the just pub we it, went to. Yeah. It's very accommodating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they yeah. knew. Well, actually the bartender didn't know I had to tell him. Oh, okay. But but they, it's the same drink. It's a hot whiskey. It's just like And delicious. They add ginger too, don't they? I know. I think maybe they do. Yeah, they they have like cloves. There's like cloves in there in the lemon. They like stick the clove in the lemon slice. Yeah. I thought it was seeds at first. I was like, wow, it's a very well-seeded lemon. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's cloves and delicious. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, Ireland, it's a thing. Um yeah, but tell us about like tell us about your first time in Ireland. Oh, uh, I came. I was selected as a, a top ten finalist for the Song of Peace competition, and so. But in order to compete in the finals, you had to compete in person in Ireland. Aw, shucks, oh, have dang. to make the trip. So um, I came here with my roommate, and we spent actually not that much time here. It was like five days or something, six days. And um, we spent time in Dublin on the, the bookends, beginning and end, and time in Tipperary, the few days in between. And I didn't win the grand prize, but, I mean, I got to go to Ireland, so I won. Nice. <laughs> and it was great. Yeah. Well, and for those of you listening, um, there's a lot of different counties in Ireland, and Tipperary is one of them. And um, we are currently in County Clare, right outside of uh, Limerick. That's true. So, yeah. Which is another county, Limerick. Yep. But we were right, right across the border, right on the clear side. Um, so yeah. Anywho, uh, Natalie, one of your superpowers, I feel like, is making friends. You have a lot of very interesting and weird friends all over the globe. I consider that a compliment. Yeah. No, it is. I mean that. I mean that in a complimentary way. And you have a lot of friends over here. Turns out, even though you've only been to Europe like a couple times. That's true. I tend but, to make friends with people I find that are interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of your French friends is coming to stay with us soon, which is pretty cool. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think uh, your talk show that you started during COVID mm-hmm. is a really good example of you, of the superpower at work, like your ability to make friends. Even during a global shutdown, you managed to make like 200 new friends. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah, when everyone went digital that first week and we were all panicking and not, I mean, I'm saying it sort of sarcastically, but also sort of truly, I watched overnight everything, all musicians go to live streaming digitally. I guess that's the only way you live stream is digitally, but I watched Nora Jones play a song at her piano on Facebook and I watched Chris Martin of Coldplay 
on his piano, he's like, I don't know how to do this thing. And he's playing Coldplay songs. And I'm like, and John Legend. And I was like, crap, to use a a more polite word. (laughs) Yeah, like if they're playing on Facebook. I know. I was like, what am I going to do? Like, uh, we're all screwed. And so (laughs) I was like, well, you know, and they have, you know, 15,000 people tuning in at the same time to watch them. And I was like, what am I supposed to do right now? And I watch all of my musician friends start playing live stream shows and I'm watching how horrendous the transition is. Like, all, none of our bedrooms were great backdrops to anything. And people were doing it anyways. And I'm like, I see your dirty laundry hamper. Like, this is not going to go well. <laughs> and so um, we were all, like, suddenly strategically, you know, my my bedroom turned into a studio with, like, I bought velvet curtains, you know, navy velvet curtains to try and mimic the Cactus Cafe. Only I just didn't want red velvet in my room. You know, I wanted <laughs> blue velvet. And... Um, I decided I didn't want to compete with all of my musician friends to like play a show, especially by myself. I felt like, what am I going to do? Play an hour every day for who knows who my songs, I guess, or covers or whatever. And that's supposed to replace incomes. Like I don't, that I got, I got even in very talented people's interviews or uh, live streams, I found myself like getting bored after five minutes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it wasn't even a, a like me, you know, saying that they weren't talented. It was me being tired of everything suddenly being on the computer. Yeah. So I had to devise this way to do a talk show. I did a talk show instead. Cause like, well, no one's really doing talk shows. Mm-hmm. I'll do it late at night when no one else is playing shows. Cause mm-hmm. most people were playing in the afternoons or evenings. I was like, I'll do sort of late night thing. And yeah. we were all doom scrolling, watching all the red numbers grow on John Hopkins and everybody was freaking out. And I was like, you know what? How about we don't even talk about COVID. We take a 20 minute break and we talk about something we love. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, well, I'm not going to monologue. So mm-hmm. let me do this with a friend or a, a buddy, anyone and it ended up being like all of my friends at first. I think you actually did your episode three times with me because it kept. Do you remember <laughs> that? Yeah, the technology kept, <laughs> it kept crashing, yeah. and then yeah. Oh my gosh, I was so embarrassed, but I was so no, grateful okay. to you. you that's why good. you like you, you book your friends for your first few episodes of whatever you're doing. Like I had the same thing happen with Brian Pounds on this podcast. He was supposed to be my guest for I think it was um, where no man has gone before, which is like episode three or something, and. We recorded an entire episode and the technology failed and and we lost it. it. And it was devastating. <laughs> I was so upset. But and I was, you know, I was embarrassed. And if it had been like some big deal person who or some stranger that I was trying to impress, I think it would have been, you know, worse. But like me and Brian go way back and <laughs> we've toured a lot together and seen each other at our worst is an understatement. So like so he was cool with it. We both know where too many of the bodies are buried, I think. So like neither of us can like can give each other too much of a hard time. So it was all fine. I'm um, glad that yeah, that I mean, but that is a really good strategy. And you know, for those of you tuning in who are thinking about starting your own show, keep that in mind. Book all your friends first. Yeah, book work all out your friends the kinks. First. Work out the kinks. Yeah. Yeah. What's what has been some of like what's the biggest lesson that you've learned about, you know, hosting and being a good host for something like that? I'm better at it than I thought. It's totally, even after doing, I've done over 200 episodes now. And even after that, I can have a really bad night 
Mm-hmm. It, or it feels really bad. Mm-hmm. Or I feel like I'm constantly stumbling through the episode. And also you you get a lot better at it too. Like there mm-hmm. are some times when I don't even, as, not to like brag about it because I, I, I do prep for all my episodes, but like the way I designed it was so that it was as little effort as possible for all parties involved. Mm-hmm. And there are some nights where I've literally been, I've driven straight in. Mm-hmm. I don't even unpack my car. I go into my room. I set up my lights and I live stream then. Like wow. with, with like no question prep. Like I have my standard questions I ask people, but it's helped me to tune into the conversation and really follow it to where it goes, which mm-hmm. is really fun because I end up asking questions that I wouldn't have thought to ask like in advance and that's how I, those are my favorite conversations are not necessarily the contrived ones where I have, I've planned out all these questions or things I'm curious about on the front end, but like where our conversations take an interesting turn or there's a joke or something. I'm like, oh no, but tell me about that. Didn't you do something, something? And yeah, it's taught me to tune into a person a little more closely, I think, which is helpful. And just to be like a little more in the moment, a little more impromptu. I think like that's be okay with it. Yeah. And be okay with it being imperfect. Right. That, Right. I am not a television host. It's not going to be perfect. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like the charm of the show, I feel like, is I started it in a very imperfect time <laughs> when I was like, you know what's beautiful? There's two people in different places having a conversation, and we're we're, we're creating something positive together yeah. in a time where everything seems to be on fire and falling mm-hmm. apart. And um, I learned that that – I mean, I kind of knew going into it that that would be helpful to my mental health. Mm-hmm. And I so knew important. that – some of my friends, I I sensed or kind of my hypothesis was some people wouldn't be thinking about their mental health and it could be a way for me to pull out some of my friends from the dark hole that they were in to yeah. have a conversation and to like focus on something positive. Yeah, I feel, I feel like it, it definitely has been that for a lot of people. And I know Jana Pocop kind of did something similar where she has like an ask me anything thing on Facebook where you can just tune in and just ask her random questions. And the point isn't really like the content, you know what I mean? Like it's not meticulously researched or curated or, you know, um, scheduled or, you know, planned. It's it's more just like a little heart to heart moment to just kind of be a goofy human for a few minutes. And um, I think that 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 was really good for a lot of people. Um, Another cool thing about your your, uh, series, which we can find on Instagram for the record, right? Half of it's on Instagram. I switched over to using StreamYard, so a lot of it's on YouTube now. YouTube too. Okay, cool. And Facebook. And it's, I think, because, like, just of the sheer amount of um, people that you've had on and, like, the the format is really cool because it's, like, little short real conversations with people in the industry. There's a lot of musicians. And then also just other people who are outside the industry, people you find interesting, a lot of your interesting, weird, funny friends. Yeah. Um, and it's just great because there's these little bite-sized nuggets and and the format of it, the sort of like, you can't really be too controlling of it. You really have to just kind of let it be what it's going to be in order to like pull that off. And you did, you pulled it off. I mean, like you said, you've had like 200 episodes. I remember you were creating for a while, like a, um, like a time-lapse thing Mm -hmm. where it went by really fast and it was just like everybody's faces that you'd interviewed. Mm -hmm. And it was like in just a couple minutes of just all these different people, different types of like, um, people. And it was really very impressive. Thanks. Plus also you were networking all year. Which yeah, I think that's true. nobody else was doing. <laughs> that was the thing that was the most devastating to me is I I found, and there was an article about this, I think it was a New York Times article about this whole 
strata of friendships that suddenly disappeared overnight and it mm. was the casual acquaintance right the guy you see at the bar every time you watch the soccer game yeah or like the girl the barista that you know her first name because you right. see her every time you go into the coffee shop or like the person at the grocery store yeah. that you you that you know on a first name because you see them weekly or twice a week right the bartender at your favorite bar um and it's not people that you know super well, but it's people you see periodically that mm-hmm. you at least know their name. That person in the office that you wave to, but you don't really yeah, have a conversation the with. The secretary at yeah. the other end of the building, or the one, the woman you always run into the bathroom at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of times in that article, it's talking about how like your next job often comes from that strata of mm-hmm. acquaintanceships. Mm-hmm. And how those are the those are the relationships that suffered or just disappeared completely during COVID. I think that's such a good point, and it's so true, especially for musicians, um, really at all levels of their career. But I really feel for a lot of the musicians that are just starting out, because I think it's so important to just you know go to shows, go to open mics, like just sort of network and meet a lot of different people um, to kind of find your thing and find your community. And um, I know that's been really hard for all those kind of younger musicians starting out in their bedrooms with a webcam. It's really, it can be really isolating anyway to be a musician. And I think it, it sucks that they've kind of lost out on that the past couple of years. I think there will be some, there have been some kind of bedroom superstars though that mm-hmm. have come out That's of it. True. People have discovered yeah. a superpower of like, Oh wow, I am actually really good at technology and I can do 500 things at the same time. Right. Um, you know, Auburn. Yeah. Auburn's great. Oh my gosh. She, I mean, and she was doing it long before COVID. Right. But she mastered the technology pretty quickly. And like, we're talking have, about our friend Auburn, which is A U B R Y N. She's out of Nashville and she's Nashville. amazing yeah. and uh, incredible voice. And, mm-hmm. She had me, this is actually my most embarrassing moment from 2020, I think, or second most embarrassing, I don't know, one of the most embarrassing moments, but it happened to be live. <laughs> and she might have made a stream and had two StreamYard streams going at the same time. And what she would do is she'd mute one of them so that the audience is only hearing one stream, but she was hearing me, I mm-hmm. think through the stream that was muted, but then she would add her harmonies but I wouldn't hear that because we wouldn't be synced up. So the up. lag wouldn't Right, so the lag you. wouldn't throw me as the guest off, but right. the audience could hear could hear harmonies. Oh, wow, that is so genius because, like, that is what Nobody's Girl spent all of 2020 trying to figure out how to do, and we never figured it out. Auburn figured it out. Auburn the only it out. thing that didn't work out was that I got confused which um, channel was muted, and I thought I was muted while she was playing her song, and so I was, like, tuning. Oh, no. And then I was, like... <laughs> It was really bad. And she, Aww. bless her, did not stop during her song no. to say, Natalie, hey, you're not muted. Your <laughs> she just can Well, I feel like she probably should have just stopped because it was really bad. I think I was like we've, tapping we on my guitar. That. I think I was doing vocal warm-ups too. But you know, I tried- the thing is, we have all done this. Like There have been Zoom campfires and stuff like that. And you know, musicians, we're all age levels. We're all like ex- levels of experience with technology. And like all of us have like at some point or another like been the ones that haven't had our mics muted. I feel like just in regular work meetings, you know, yeah, and then your kids just, like in the background of the TV or Somebody whatever. walks by naked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, at least it's just, it just like the mic, yeah, it not was, the camera. I was so embarrassed though. <laughs> I still haven't gone back to listen to the, to even Aww. hear her harmonies. I know it was amazing. Anyways, just, I'm sure like, if that makes anybody no feel. No one remembers that for the record. <laughs> like no one remembers that moment of 2020 except you. 
All of that to say, that was one of my most embarrassing <laughs> moments. And Auburn was stellar host and totally didn't make me feel bad about it, but I felt really bad about it. Oh, well. She was great, though. I'm sure she was just happy to have you on and it was all fine. But uh, tell us about, tell us a little bit about, um, you, you know, your background. So you grew up in Dallas in kind of a non-musical family, really. Right. Um, did any of the other, I know you have a lot of brothers and sisters in any of your siblings you know, take music lessons or? Yeah, they actually all took piano except me. <laughs> uh, and and aren't I think, any of them musicians? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I was like, dang it, I should have begged harder to take a piano. But because I was first, it's kind of the guinea pig and everything. And I, um, my parents put me in ballet and I was really good at that, um, but ended up ultimately not continuing. I probably got out right before, you know, some kind of eating disorder is on the French. Well, that worked probably. out for you. <laughs> worked out well. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, I, I do kind of regret that I didn't push harder to take piano. Um, mm. but we, we, you don't know, we watched a lot of musicals and there was music in the house, but like my, and my parents like played in band in high school and stuff. Really? I didn't know My that. mom played flute and my dad played trombone. Wow. Um, but Cute. I didn't, uh, together? No, they were in different, different bands. Bands. I was just trying to picture Texas. like a band with a trombone <laughs> and a flute in it. Um, That's what could happen. No, they met in college at A&M, so I oh. kind of owe my existence probably to A&M, even though know, however you feel about A&M. But. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't really I don't really follow the sports balls. <laughs> I don't either. That's a cool thing about being a musician is that there are a lot of us. You kind of get a pass. kind of don't care. <laughs> yeah, 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 and people, people are like, well, expect that you don't understand I guess if you it. can play and like make good sounds, you don't have to care about sports. <laughs> or be good at them. <laughs> it's great. I actually can catch a football and run decent. You're pretty sporty. So like. Yeah, you were on the golf team. <laughs> we can That's tell that true. story later. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but yeah, so grew up in Dallas doing doing the sports balls and the ballet. And then how did you find your way to um, music? How did that happen? Well, I had always, and I think maybe most musicians feel like this is normal. This is how everybody is until you figure out that it's not normal. This is not how everybody is. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. Like I was always singing and like making up songs that yeah. without intention, just like, you know, gibberish, like my dolls are playing together and they're singing to each other. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't remember yes. any of those songs. I did this too. But there it is. And always creating and I was writing stories and things and but I wouldn't say I intentionally started writing like wordsmithing until maybe fifth grade. And I mean, as much as a fifth grader can. Yeah. When I learned about poetry and learned what poetry was. And I think one of our assignments was to rewrite the 23rd Psalm and make it rhyme. Interesting. And um, I, I probably should go and find that um, poem. And it wasn't great. If I looked at it now, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, a fifth grader did that. But <laughs> it it was that a great first assignment, moment. Though. Yeah, it's, it's really great. Um, mm-hmm. It that that assignment, like doing that assignment, I found it kind of hard, but like a pleasurable, like working for mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And it's that was one of those crystal moments in my mind, looking back when I actually thought through my story. Because I can say I didn't come from a musical family, but musicians will eventually find their way. Yeah. And like you remember yeah. these kind of cl- clear moments where like I had this feeling wow, I understand this. Mm-hmm. This seems to come easily to me and it's fun. Mm-hmm. And so like all of those things went into that poem or that rewriting of the poem. And 
I was doing it all the time after that. Just like putting words together and like rhyming things and like playing with word patterns. Yeah, I think that's so true that like music kind of always finds a way. I think like in kids who grow up in houses where there isn't a guitar or a piano or they don't have access to like GarageBand or whatever, like, you know, maybe they become rappers. Like maybe they become something else, singers, you know. I mean, people find a way to like to um, channel that, I think. I don't know how you would describe it, but like the, it's not just, you know, being a creative or conjuring up like, like making a thing happen, but like it comes out of you. Like it's bubbling up this energy that you have to do something with. Yeah. And it's, it's a conglomeration of things. It's not just, I have to say this or I have Mm -hmm. to say this thing in a certain way. It's like, it's a it's a mass of different kinds of energy that doesn't that's a lot of scientific no, terms. No, no, no. I, I think like, about it the same way. I was talking to my therapist about this, and I don't remember if it was her that came up with this expression or me, but like I think of it as like a lightning rod, mm-hmm. um, and I'm the lightning rod. So there's like energy, and it's flowing through, and um, you can channel energy in all kinds of ways, and even if it's negative energy, especially if it's negative energy, if it's like anger or like um pain you know um i can send that out into the world by punching a wall um or i can be this lightning rod and just kind of like put it in the ground you know and channel it out and turn it into something beautiful you solid know? something solid and beautiful yeah you know that scene in is it sweet home alabama yeah like sticking the rods yes on the exactly coast? like that so- it's exactly like that. Yeah. So that's how it feels to me. And then when you're in the flow and you're really feeling that, that kind of, it's like a transformative power. It's, it's the ability to kind of like, like a vulture does, you know, like you take something that's um, waste and kind of clean it and transform it and make it something else. Yeah. I literally never thought of a vulture in a positive way before. <laughs> so I'm going to be thinking on that for a while. Yeah. <laughs> or like, um, like a you know a decomposer in the in the ecosystem like mm-hmm. you're like a mushroom or something you're like Earthworm? turning it yeah like you're sort of you're turning the ground over you know mm-hmm. i don't know it's That's sort a of a idea. weird way good to think thought. about it but um anyway <laughs> this is not a good transition but tell me about star trek when was the first time that you um were aware of star trek did you watch it at all growing up I did. It wasn't a focus in my family and we like I never watched anything in order. Mm-hmm. Um I do remember flashes of seeing a couple different episodes. Um and I one of them specifically was my dad was working out, I think on some kind of machine and I was also in the bedroom jump roping and we were watching Star Trek an episode. And so it was like a moment of like, my dad's going to be watching this while he's working out and I just want to watch something. So mm-hmm. like I'm there, okay, I'll work out too. <laughs> like jumping rope. Do you remember which Star Trek it was? Like was it 90s Star Trek? Um, It was, I think it was um, the original series, but I want to say, like I remember uh, Spock, Um, I feel like they were wearing red red okay sounds like original series to me yeah i don't know but i've seen varieties like uh we when we moved to another house uh suddenly i had a next door neighbor who was sort of close to my age and they were really into star trek but i want to say it might be deep space nine or um voyager Mm -hmm. um with the lady captain what was her name again yeah that's voyager captain janeway Catherine. Catherine Janeway. Um, And that was really cool. I liked watching that series. But, like, again, it wasn't a thing we did at my house. It was like, I'm over at someone's house, and Mm -hmm. they're watching it because they're really into it. And I always enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. 
But we also really love Star Wars at my house. So, like, there were other things we would watch instead. Oh, yeah. I think. Oh, that's really great. (laughs) So, I'm aware of certain, like, scenes and phrases, but, like, I'm not a deep fan. So, like, I don't know all. Like, even when we watched this episode, there were, like, words or phrases that I was like, oh, yeah, Romulan, Romulus. That now it's coming back a little bit, but I haven't heard the term in years yeah i feel like there are it's really interesting like i've had a lot of people on the show that have no experience with star trek at all and then they figure out like oh i'm i am familiar with that you know like the you know phrases like red alert or um the concept of being beamed up or down you know Mm -hmm. like um spock just knowledge of who spock is like i feel like everybody kind of there's sort of this like cultural you know knowledge that we all have that even if we've never seen the show, like we know a couple things about it. Well, I think that it's probably true and maybe it's not true, but I'd like to think it's true that I think, especially cause this was in these late sixties, sixties. Yeah. Um, before computers were really a thing in everyone's house. Right. Yeah. There weren't personal and computers yet. Just the, the technology and the phrases they use, especially in this episode, like, I forgot what they, the term they use, but essentially they were mirroring, mirroring each other's screens. Like, well, let mm-hmm. me see what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And like, so they could see the other ship. Visual They could see a visual. Mm-hmm. So they're like basically video chatting. Yeah. And also then they could see what the other ship was viewing, like mm-hmm. out in space. Right. And so like. So different view screens and different. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, this is not like amazing to me and that I'm like, I do this every day with someone right. else's screen. I can right. see what they're seeing or whatever. Right. But if and you I'm think like, about, but in the sixties, right. that would be mind blowing. Like color TV was a new thing. And to, <laughs> just to think like how forward thinking it was. And so I think our technology is influenced by Star Trek and oh, words and phrases that we use in our technology are directly taken from 100%. Star Trek. 100%. So, well, a, and other a, a great example here in the age of COVID is, you know, project warp speed. Right? That's directly from Star Trek. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of Star Trek episodes where McCoy encounters some weird disease and has to solve it really quickly. And mm-hmm. yeah, so it's it's definitely influenced a lot of the way that we think about a lot of things for better or for worse. So I think even to your point, like people that maybe haven't seen anything will recognize things because it has so heavily impacted like words and phrases in our tech technology yeah. culture. Yeah, the idea of like a communicator, you know, mm-hmm. like this is before cell phones. Like mm-hmm. this is this influenced so many things. Yeah. Speaking um, of, they had this weird in-ear device that just looked like super uncomfortable. <laughs> like take that yeah, out. Yeah, their please. Bluetooth headsets <laughs> look very uncomfortable. It, it was yeah. like a whole freaking phone hanging out yeah. of their ear. Hanging out of your ear. <laughs> I was like, That's I a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and Spock took it out and had like this weird pointed rubbery in it. I was like, I don't. That cannot be comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure the actors loved. Loved that, but uh, Aurora has to have that in her ear quite a bit. Um, well, let's talk through this particular episode. Did you like it? <laughs> I did. Start there. I did. Yeah? Yeah. What did you like about it? Well, I feel like it's been, I felt like I took kind of an intellectual approach to watching it because I was remembering things and also just kind of I've been in sort of a take a step back kind of period of life where like, especially watching older movies and TV shows of like, huh, thinking about the filmmaker's intent in making it. Mm -hmm. And so I thought there were some things that were interesting. And I, I haven't really watched Star Trek probably since college when I took a film class. And Mm -hmm. so like 
noticing certain things like there's always this really bright patch of light on Dr. Kirk's like <laughs> eyes. Yeah, captain lighting. <laughs> he probably has like raccoon eyes otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, it well, was he also super has obvious. These beautiful blue eyes, he, and they're, they're showing them off. You know, I was like, I think that was all very intentional. And totally. like the way he steps forward, like into that shaft of light. Yeah, I was like, yeah. all right. <laughs> Dramatic lighting is the captain's privilege. Yeah. So it was really it's part of the job. You get that whenever they they promote you. All of a sudden, you get really good lighting and angles. Yeah, it was uh, super interesting. Uh, I feel like it's. From a film perspective, when you have a television series and it is an action type series, anytime you have that and the series start, also, is this going to be like spoiler alert for anyone? No, 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 it doesn't no. matter. Cool. No. Anytime you have an action series and an episode starts with a wedding, somebody's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh man, like. They're yeah. not going to get married, and they yeah. don't. They get interrupted. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, one of them or both of them are going to die. Maybe they'll <laughs> die in each other's arms, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I was sure. like, huh, because I don't remember those two people. And right. I was like, ah, they're castaways. <laughs> and so, and then there was like one middle scene, or there were a couple middle scenes where they interacted with each other. Mm-hmm the fiancés mm-hmm. and um you know playful like banter or whatever i was like oh yeah one of them is definitely gonna die definitely but i couldn't die. tell yeah. which one you know <laughs> and um so that was really interesting and then at the very end the captain said something to her yeah that did feel a little heavy-handed it's like okay we get it like people die in war does do we have to like introduce these characters and try to get us emotionally like attached to them for the sole purpose of killing them off, you know? There was, no. like, so he's, so she, like, flung herself into Captain Kirk's arms at the very end. And yeah. she was crying. I mm-hmm. mean. Yeah. Um, which, you know, yeah, that was, like, not, un, it was very dramatic filmed. But, like, I mean, I think anybody probably would. Um, and he said something to her. It doesn't make any sense. Uh-huh. He but says you, it never makes any sense. But you both... You both have to know there was a reason. You know, it's funny. I had the subtitles on because I I usually do because I want to catch all of the dialogue. And the subtitles said, you both have to know there was a reason. But I thought what he said was, we both have to know. I thought, well, I'd have to watch it again. Which would make more sense because, like, you know, there's Martine, you know, um, who's the widow, you know, or or I guess, like, her fiancé is dead, not technically a widow. And then Tomlinson is the one who dies. And and then Kirk says, you know, it never makes any sense, but, you know, we both have to know there was a reason. That, to me, if feels said, like If he sense. really said we, that mm-hmm. makes sense. That but makes I thought sense. he said, you both have to know. And I was like, so does she have a plural personality? Or yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Is it she and Tomlinson? That's a I thing. was like a little confused. It just confused, doesn't make any like, sense otherwise. You yeah. both. Yeah. But there was a lot of dialogue in this episode that didn't make a lot of sense to me. It was, I was like, well, so I'd have to watch other episodes and compare them, but yeah. I was like, yeah, there's some interesting, this is definitely written in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but anyways, I thought that little, like, the love plot was interesting. Yeah, I liked the wedding. You know, it's it was clearly like a, a non-denominational sort of, you know, Unitarian type wedding. But definitely using the wedding march. Yeah, they they had the wedding march. Western music. Yeah, and they had like some kind of a candle thing, candelabra thing. She had white feathers in her hair. She had white feathers in her hair. 
Um, Everyone just wore their normal uniform. But everybody's wearing uniforms. And I noticed that, like, all the women's hair was, like, especially elaborate and beautiful. Um, I mean, Yeoman Rand always has the best hair with, like, the basket weave thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's very over the top. But the women in general in the original series, like, all have really elaborate hair. And, I mean, that was fashionable in the late 60s, early 70s. But also, I think, like... Um, you know, if you're, it kind of makes sense. Like if, if we're in the future and every, and you're wearing uniforms every day on the ship, um, you're kind of going to personalize it somehow. You know what I mean? It's like, it's your one way of like sort of showing your personality a little bit. So I thought that was kind of cool. I liked the whole feathers thing. And, um, yeah, I think Kirk makes some kind of a reference to like our many different faiths, which I thought was cool. It's kind of like they're, you know, in the future, it's not like there just isn't religion anymore. It's mm-hmm. like there's a plurality of it, and they're all kind of like mm-hmm. getting along and sort of translating all of these things into space or whatever, which is cool. So the whole thing about ship captains marrying people sent me down a rabbit hole that I wanted to get into. So, because he has this line where he's like, Since the days of the first wooden vessels, all shipmasters have had one happy privilege, that of uniting two people in the bonds of matrimony. And I was like, oh, that's a beautiful little speech, you know. I wonder what the history of that is. And I Googled it, and guess what? (laughs) Ship captains can't actually marry people. This is not a thing. Um, It's just one of these things that, like, everybody believes because people just tell you that it's true and you just grow up thinking it's true and it's not. Another example is like penguins. Penguins are not monogamous for life. They don't mate for life. They are monogamous, but they switch it up every season. <laughs> you nice. know? Some, like a few of them maybe hang on to the same partner, but it's not like by any means the norm. Um, so it's just one of those things. And ship captains cannot actually perform marriages just by the nature of being ship captains, you know, actually, in fact, because you're on international water, (laughs) you know, like the different seas all have different, they're all belong to different nation states and stuff. And so like the laws are going to change, you know, every couple of hours based on where you're sailing. So a lot of couples that want to get married at sea, they actually have to like have all the paperwork and the marriage certificate and everything signed and notarized like before they ever get on the boat. Mm -hmm. So it's more just like a formality or a ceremony, but it doesn't have any actual legal um, meaning. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, note to anybody listening that wants to get married on a ship, like on a whim. I mean, you can do it in Vegas, but you can't do it on a boat. (laughs) Probably not (laughs) on a plane either. Probably not on a plane either. Yeah. And in fact, Navy captains, there's like an actual code that prohibits them from um, officiating weddings. Interesting. So, very interesting. Um, and if anybody's more interested in that and the history of that, um, I found a really cool article in the New York Times that I will put in the comments on this episode, in the um, in the notes section, I mean, of this episode. And uh, yeah, but it's been in a lot of movies since like The African Queen, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Star Trek. I mean, it's been a ton of movies that, that this happens in movies, but it doesn't actually happen in real life. So there you go. Um, seems like that would be the case. Like writers would make that the case if there is no like priest or person of faith, father type figure to like, that would have that privilege. Right. But so, then like, you're like, you would, why, why, who has the most authority? Why wouldn't would there be, be the a captain. chaplain though? Right. Right. But like, if there yeah. isn't, mm-hmm. then like who for the writer, who's going to have that privilege? True. Yeah. Like so you'd in, have to give, somebody in on the boat has to do it. Like the doctor or somebody. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and the idea of like a ship's counselor, you know, like a ship therapist didn't show up until um, next generation. 
And like all these people definitely need therapy. So I'm like, where is the ship's counselor? But that's another thing. Like there should be a ship's chaplain too, I think. Um, Sort of a non-denominational, I don't know, spiritual advisor type person. Yeah. You know, who's sort of like versed in different faiths, I guess. Or maybe several different like major religion chaplains. I don't know. It seems more like it would need to be a scholar. Yeah, I mean, it. it I feel like scholar. I feel like there's got to be some officers serving that like are also ordained. You know, possibly a historian. Yeah, because someone would have to know about a bunch of different cultures and be able to inform the captain about that. that right, seems like maybe a good person to have right. A yeah, 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 like a cultural advisor person. Let's make them less expendable in episodes. Yeah, writers. Oh Very man, true. nobody can marry. Yeah, because your historian's gone. Your historian's <laughs> Don't kill that person. Don't kill that guy. Um. Yeah. So, um, so we get a red alert in this episode, which is very exciting. The red alert goes off in the middle of the wedding. Um, Outpost four is under attack, and so they're like speeding at full maximum speed to get there in time. But they they're having trouble getting there in time because it's a long way away. Um, and then Spock pulls up like a star sector map on the view screen, which looks really cool. And you get to see um, there's a neutral zone. And on the left, you see all these Earth outposts. I think there's seven of them. And on the right is this Romulan Star Empire, which is the first time that we hear about the Romulans is this episode. Very exciting. Oh, interesting. Love the Romulans. Um, And they're sort of like the first, like, bad guy alien race we're introduced to. Like, this is pre-Klingons. So pretty cool. Um, and there's two planets there. There's Romulus and it looks like Romy or something. It's like M R O M I I. Um, which, you know, so we have to take a second and talk about Romulus and Remus, um, which is yet another Star Trek, uh, you know, episode that references Roman mythology. This happens quite a bit. Roman mythology, Greek mythology, and Shakespeare show up just kind of constantly in Star Trek. Um, so Romulus and Remus, just to refresh everybody's memories, um, were the twin brothers who, like, are part of the Roman foundational myth for the city of Rome. So the story goes that there were these two brothers, these twins, and their mother was the daughter of a displaced king. Um, in some other stories, their father is Mars, the god of war, but in most stories, their father was this king who was displaced by, like, his brother. So then they were abandoned um, into the river Tiber, because they were a threat to the throne, right? So they were lineage of this other king. So the the king that displaced the other king um, threw them into the river to kill them off And when they were infants. But they were saved by the father of the river, the god Tiberi- Tiberinus. Tiberinus. Um, and then the place where they were rescued eventually became Rome. They were adopted by a shepherd whose name was Faustulus. And there's this image of, like, a wolf suckling these two human boy babies, mm-hmm. which is on a lot of coins and kind of Roman artifacts. And it was, like, a common symbol for Rome. Um, so when they grew up, Remus was imprisoned by, you know, the false king. But then Romulus and his grandfather, the true king, joined forces to rescue Remus and make their grandfather the king again, which they did. And then the twins set out to build their own city. Um, and they found these seven hills surrounding this area, Rome. And the twins couldn't agree on which hill to build the city on. So they ended up in this big argument, this big fight. And eventually Remus was killed. And in some stories, it's Romulus who kills his brother Remus. And in other stories, it's his followers or whatever. 
but um, it's kind of a Jacob and Esau sort of situation. And um, so when Romulus is the surviving brother, he founds the city of Rome on the hill that he wanted to found it on. And he reigns for very many years as the first king of Rome. So it's a legend, you know, it's not like history, but this is the legend that um, Romans believed. And it sort of gave them this sense of like divinity and, um, you know, this history of their city or whatever. So, yeah, so that is the legend of the founding of Rome, which is just interesting and just good backstory to know. Um, I'm not sure, like, probably a lot of viewers in the 60s would have had like some kind of knowledge of that in the back of their heads. I think like maybe less people study like Greek and Roman mythology than they did, you know, in the fifties and sixties, we don't teach Latin schools anymore, but, um, but yeah, that is the legend of Romulus and Remus. And so we have these two planets that are, one of them is Romulus and the other one is like Romy, but it's kind of like Remus, I guess. Um, so anyway, so, um, you know, as they're speeding toward the outpost, um, and it's clear that the outpost has been attacked, um, Spock kind of catches everybody up on some uh, backstory about the Earth-Romulan conflict and brings in a lot of politics of the Star Trek universe, which mm-hmm. we should briefly go over. Basically, there was this, uh, this war. It was 100 years ago with the Romulan, inf- with the Romulan Empire. It was like a conflict. And now, as a result of that war, we have these outpost stations on the human side. Earth side. On the Earth side. And each of them are on an asteroid. And the purpose is to monitor the neutral zone and make sure that the Romulans don't break the treaty. And the Romulans on the other side make sure that the Earthlings don't break the treaty. Um, And they have this thing called, you know, the uh, some kind of treaty. I forget what it's called. Um, but so there's this Earth-Romulan conflict. Um, and so they fought it. The, the original war that they fought, they fought with primitive atomic weapons in primitive space vessels. And it was before ship-to-ship visual communication, which means that, like, nobody – and also no one took any prisoners. So people just destroyed each other but didn't take prisoners. Mm-hmm. And so because of that and because they didn't have, like, view screen technology, um, nobody knew what anybody looked like. So the Romulans don't know what the Earth – Earth people look like, and Earth people don't know what Romulans look like, um, which I think is interesting. It is interesting. Um, because, yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense if they've only ever encountered this race, like, through space warfare, then, yeah, I guess maybe. And it was 100 years ago. And it was 100 years ago. So nobody alive today would Nobody be able alive to- today would be able to tell you about it. So, yeah, so then the Earthlings consider the Romulans to be warlike, cruel, treacherous, and Spock says... At the end, he sort of adds to that, and only the Romulans know what they think of Earth, which I think is an interesting sort of addition that he puts at the end. It's kind of like um, he's sort of countering the bias a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's like it worked both ways. Right. Um, So basically, we have these two planets, these two cultures, and well, I guess there, there are two Romulan planets and then Earth, and you have these two different cultures that there's this closed border, there's this treaty, um, and the treaty keeps peace, but it also keeps everybody separated. Um, and there's no diplomatic relations and there's no cross-cultural understanding at all. And we don't know what the Romulans look like. And the treaty was established by subspace radio and that created the neutral zone. And if you enter into this zone, if you even just go into the zone, then that's an act of war. And then everybody's at war, which everybody's trying to avoid. So, it's also important to say, like, at this point in this episode and in the series, we don't know what the Federation is. 
In Star Trek, there's this thing called the Federation of Planets. And Earth is a part of it. And the planet Vulcan is a part of it. And there are other, like, ally planets that are all in this big, you know, space Federation thing. But they haven't really, like, outlined that yet at this point in the series. So, you know, the Enterprise is an Earth ship. It's not like a Federation ship. Um, and we also don't know that Vulcan and Earth are allies. Like, Spock is on the ship, but he's, like, the only alien on the ship. And so, for all we know, he could be, like, an expat or something. Right. Like, we haven't really spelled that out. Um, so, yeah. So, that's important to to mention. But this was really the first episode that kind of um, was did that kind of world building that sort of expanded the series to think of it in terms of there's this universe where there are different planets and they all have like political relationships with each other. That was sort of a new concept that came about because of this episode, which is cool because um, it gives the writers a lot to work with. Yeah. Um, I noticed some of the setting up that the writers did in other parts that I was like, well, that was very intentional. Maybe like, a little heavy handed. Like what? Well, do you want to keep talking about this or like it's you can move on. It's um, shifting where you want. <laughs> Um, when they were using other characters, specifically the Romulan, to basically like talk up Kirk and his abilities as captain. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't know what has previously been said about Kirk, like who else that they have interacted with. But mm-hmm. this was the, f- I noticed that because there is a conflict and there's maneuvering and strategy that's happening the other captain of the other ship is like, wow, I've met my match. Right. This per- you know, in another life, we would have been another reality. We, I would have called you friend. And yeah. like, right. are you a sorcerer? He is a sorcerer. He is reading the thoughts of my mind. <laughs> like really dramatic things that I was like, all right, all right, I get it. He's great. He's we a good captain. He's a good captain. He's okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really yeah, intentional to like build up Kirk as like this force of like strategy. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, funny because like I had I definitely had been thinking about this episode um, in terms of just like like all those comments just setting them up to be these sort of like equals, which mm-hmm. kind of harkens back to the twin idea, like mm-hmm. Romulus and Remus, like these two brothers fighting. Um, so that's kind of where my head went. But like, you're totally right. Yeah, because like they can't he can't talk about himself and be like, I'm a great captain. <laughs> but if somebody else sort of sets him up right, as it's like an third equal, party validation. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, I guess it could come from, like, someone else who's had a longer history with the captain than maybe, like, a younger person on the ship. But, like, right. I don't remember the – I don't know the background of the other, like, 13 episodes. So, yeah. like, Bones maybe. We're pretty early into the series at okay. this point. Like, there isn't a lot of backstory that's been established, you know. Cool. Okay. So, yeah. Um, that is an interesting <laughs> – that's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about it that way. But totally very true. Um and we have had the episode with the the Corbamite maneuver, which is uh, one where there is like battle strategy and mm-hmm. sort of bluffing. And Spock is sort of the chess player and Kirk is like the poker player. So he sort of shoots from the hip and it's more about like reading the other person. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So we've sort of established that he's good at that. Mm-hmm. But this is like definitely a new level of sort of war games, I guess, mm-hmm. in this episode. Um, Paul Schneider, who wrote this episode... It's interesting. He based the entire plot on a battleship movie that was made in the 50s and was about World War II. 
And which makes a lot of sense if you kind of think about it. And several reviewers have like commented on this. But if you think of the Enterprise as being like just a ship Mm -hmm. that's on top of the ocean, Mm -hmm. and then you think of the Romulans as being like a submarine, Mm -hmm. you know, so when they put on the cloaking device, they disappear. Right. That's what it was like fighting submarines in World War II. Because they would just disappear under the water, and then you wouldn't know where the fuck they were, right? <laughs> you know, so um, it's that concept. If you think about it that way, that kind of helps it make a little more sense. It's like even they have like some his, sensors, but but it's not like super precise. Even his comment at the end, one of the last maneuvers, he said, "Back up, they're going to try and get under us." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was interesting. Yeah. It's like, why not just over you or right. the side of you? Right. Like we're in a three dimensional space. Yeah. Where you can move in any direction. Right. Well, and ostensibly, you know, one of the interesting things about Star Trek in general is that they use a lot of Navy terminology and the ships were sort of designed to, to be similar to like the modern day naval ships of that time. Right. So that everything would feel pretty familiar to the viewers and the viewers would be like, oh, okay, this is like sort of a military thing, but like in the future. Right. So they use a lot of like, you know, like captain, lieutenant, these kind of words that like starboard. Yeah, starboard. Well, that's like naval. Um you haven't brought it up yet, but I or where are you going next? Are you going we in can chronological go, order? You get to you get to pick. Well I thought it was it was pretty poignant, like they they pretty poignantly stick styles out in his commentary mm-hmm. on like he's bringing up some history too. He's very like like angry about Mm -hmm. the Romulans and he Mm -hmm. immediately assumes it's a Romulan ship when like there isn't any evidence yet. Right. Of it being, it could, I don't know, like clearly there was an attack, but like everyone else in the ship is like, come on, man, given an an eye, like, okay, but we don't actually know. Well, and there are later episodes in like next generation where I don't want to give too much away, but if you haven't seen next generation, but there's like other conflicts with Romulans that turn out to maybe not necessarily be Romulans, be these outside forces. Right. So, but it was interesting that, like, and he jumped like, to that conclusion. He jumped to that conclusion. He sees blood. He's mm-hmm. just like, raw, like, right. We got to get in there and we can't retreat. And I don't know. He gets pretty aggressive really quick and right. uh, not, I guess, questioning the authority of Kirk. And also, right. um, Kirk is pretty quick to shut it down. Yeah. Because yeah. Styles, Styles' family that they lost in the war, like his. I don't know if it's his father, but like granddad and uncles, like multiple men in his family were lost. In he the doesn't war. specify. He says like there was a Captain Styles. So I mean, it's a hundred years ago. So that could be, sounds like multiple Styles in that. And then well, then he had officers under him that also. Died. Oh, I thought he meant multiple Styles. No, his no, family. no. Like he had an ancestor who right. was responsible for a lot of other people, subordinates, and they all died. And this was maybe a grandfather, maybe or grandmother, I guess. Yeah, um, great grandfather, great grandmother. And then yeah. Kurt cuts in real quickly with their war, not, not yours. yours. Right. Yeah. And he kind of like essentially shuts him down. But like, I mean, that's your red flag for like the rest of the episode of like right. where the animosity inner within your own ship where the animosity is coming from. Well, so one way to think about this episode, um, if it is a World War II episode, which it is, right? And World War II is very much on everybody's minds, like, in America in the 60s. Like, it's been a couple decades. It's been, like, two decades. But everybody's still really thinking a lot about it. Um, The episode right before this one is called Conscience of the King. And it sort of deals with, like, um, the Nuremberg trials and Nazi trials and, like, 
um, Nazis being Nazi officers being brought to justice. It's sort of like about war crimes. And so World War II was very much like on everybody's mind still a couple decades later. And I think there was a sort of general feeling of like, we don't want to be in another conflict like that. We need to like remember, you know, the costs of war and like remember all these lessons that we've learned from this war. And you kind of have like two generations of people, which is another thing that a lot of, I always like go and read reviews of the episodes. I make my own notes first and I kind of go wherever those notes take me with my research. But then um, when I'm done doing that for every episode, I, I read other people's reviews because I want to make sure I don't miss anything. A lot of times I get some cool insights. Um, and one thing that several reviewers brought up is this idea of like these kind of two generations of like officers. So you have like, you know, the commander or the captain, you know, and then you have like other officers who are younger, who are sort of a little more battle thirsty. So on both ships, you have like a younger officer who's like, wants the glory of battle. And then you have like an older, more experienced officer who's kind of tempering that and going like, you know, easy because like war is easy to get into and hard to get out of. Yeah. There's a cost, you know? So, um, that's kind of like interesting, you know, in terms of like just the sixties and and being, that's about the age gap, right? So you would have like younger 20 something people who that's mostly who dies in war. It's like 20 somethings. Um, and then you have these sort of experience 40 somethings going like, okay, hang on, you know? So that's just kind of an interesting aspect of this. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can kind of, you can kind of see how, you know, your youth or your experience sort of, and whether or not you remember the last war kind of affects your, um, your judgment and your motivations. So that's just definitely a theme in different ways. Um, yeah, I also think that moment is really interesting because he specifically brings up bigotry. Um, He uses uses that word. Yeah. And so he calls out styles for being bigoted and styles like is bigoted several times in this episode. He like says like underhanded things about Spock. Um, But not until you get a view of the Romulans. Right. And as soon as everyone gets a view of the Romulans and they all kind of look like Spock, everyone in the ship kind of like side eyes Spock. (laughs) Yeah. Including like Scotty, like, there's this moment where, and I noticed um, watching it that like Montgomery Scott and even Kirk for a second sort of give him a look. Um, but then Scotty and Kirk sort of immediately kind of check themselves and you can kind of see them check themselves. Um, but Styles is just like giving him a death glare. <laughs> you know, he's just staring him down. And um, they've already made the comment, I think, that. Um, there may be Romulan spies on the ship. And it's before you get a right view before, of the Romulans. Yeah, it was right before. So, um, which is interesting because Styles says it. He's like, you know, maybe there's spies on the ship. Like, and he's clearly paranoid, you know. Um, but, but Kirk kind of humors him. Kirk's like, okay, let's go to whatever alert, security alert. Um, but Sulu backs him up. Sulu's like, I think he's right, you know. Which is an interesting moment, especially when you consider the fact that George Takei, who plays Sulu, is Japanese-American. Mm-hmm. He is the only Japanese-American cast member of the show. And, um, you know, he spent a ch- like a big chunk of his childhood in a Japanese internment camp, right? you know, following the war. So he has firsthand experience um, with racism and bigotry and the kind of 
hate that was directed at Asian Americans following World War II that, you know, really traumatized and impacted families for generations and is still impacting people today. And there's still, you know, different kinds of um, discrimination and bigotry today directed at um, Asian Americans from like white Americans and other groups. So that is, you know, an interesting thing. Um, and now I, it's COVID now related. It's the co- there's, there's that, there's other things too. There's some stuff that's been around for, for forever and other things are new. Um, it just sort of, I feel like it just kind of changes shape every decade or so, but it's the same ugly monster, you know? And um, at this time in history, there was definitely a lot of bigotry and racism. I mean, this is like, we were right in the middle of the civil rights movement when this show is being made and airing. Um, So it is cool for me to see a moment where Captain Kirk just like outright says, you know, leave any bigotry in your quarters because there's no room for it on the bridge. Like he says that directly. Um, and I, I find that really interesting. Um, it's not overt, you know, like all of this is really coded, you know. Um, and But I do think, and several reviewers have pointed out, there's a website, tour.com, which is um, a really good, like, Star Trek review website that I like. And they pointed out the connection between, like, okay, if this is a World War II battleship um, movie, then, you know, the Enterprise are the allies. And that means the Romulans are, like... Japanese or German, you know, so, and what they were saying is that they, they feel like it's, they're Japanese because they have kind of like a foreign thing, you know, they've, they're definitely othered in this episode, you know, it's like a, it's a foreign culture that prioritizes like duty and loyalty, even at the cost of peace, they're kind of warmongering and they're about their conquerors, you know, like the Romans were like, they go out and make an empire, they're an empire, right? Um, just like the Japanese were an empire with an emperor, um, also a culture that honors duty and loyalty and communal service, you know? So you can kind of see how the writers are like drawing that parallel. Um, there are things that are really problematic about that. Um, because I think that it, you know, these are, this is a different alien race, you know, and we're saying like, people who are who are descended from the Asian continent are like so foreign as to be like another race. Like that the othering of that I think is kind of um not great. Um also they're the bad guys. They're the bad guys in this episode. And so even now in the 60s, like two decades removed from World War II, we're still seeing this other culture as being bad. Right. Um so I think that that's really instead of seeing it as like, okay, well there there are these two nations that were at war and nations are not good or bad. They're just different, you know, right. but we also, by the same token, get this speech about bigotry. We get, um, all of the moments throughout the whole episode where Kirk and the other commander say over and over and over, like, he's thinking just like, I think he's just like me, you know? Um, and there is this kind of respect that they have for each other at the end in those final scenes, so I think that there's a lot of there's a lot that this episode does to dismantle that othering and dismantle um racism and bigotry but also it's you know it's not perfect. Like right. so this is me just sort of like pointing out all of that and saying like you as the viewer and you as the listener listening to this now these are just things for you to think about and you can go back and watch it for yourself and and draw your own conclusions but it's definitely interesting stuff to have in the back of your mind as you're watching um, 
Yeah, especially as it pertains to like George Takei, you know, and the scenes with him. I definitely like am paying attention, I guess that's what I'm saying. But um, I think it's interesting that in the future, bigotry is still a thing. Yeah. You know, because Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, you know, ostensibly created this universe where humanity has evolved past like discriminating against other humans based on the color of their skin or based on sex or based on whatever. But um, we're still seeing xenophobia and we're still seeing bigotry. It's just toward other aliens, you know? Right. So I think that that's an interesting, it's an an interesting lesson. And I, I really like it because, um, you know, it's this idea that like, yes, we can better ourselves and yes, we can improve as a species and become like better than the last generation in some ways, but also like we shouldn't think of, we shouldn't think of racism as a thing that like is ever going to just not exist, you know? Cause I think ultimately like humans are afraid of something they consider different or unknown or unknowable or, right. or just different, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we can view different as bad mm-hmm. or threatening Mm-hmm. And I mean, it can be sometimes when there's misunderstandings and miscommunications, but a lot of it, it takes, many of us are too impatient to take the time to get to know and to build a bridge. It's easier to burn one than build one. Totally. Yeah. And I I also think like the way that we're taught to think about things is like, you know, that there are like these good tolerant people in our society and then there are like bad racists. Do you know what I mean? And you're either one or the other. Right. You're either like a good white person or a bad white or like, you know. Really, it's kind of in all of us to be afraid and to. Yes. And just the way even like other adults in our lives have casually said things Mm -hmm. that maybe we didn't think about or understand as a kid. Mm -hmm. But then if you think about it later as an adult. You can unpack it as an adult and be like, okay, that's you othering this person. Or this culture or this whatever. And I think that's really, that's at the core of the spirit of Star Trek is not that humans ever become perfect, but that humans are growing and humans become more aware of these things and better at countering them and better at like, um, you know, fighting those impulses, those darker impulses of humanity, you know? Um, but yeah, I think a better way to think about racism and lots of people are talking about this now in the era that we're living in. Um, is like this thing that sort of permeates the entire culture. It's like a toxic gas or something or like an inherited gene that like crops up periodically. And it's the sort of thing that we have to be vigilant about and just be on the lookout for. Um, And all the isms are kind of that way to me, like sexism, you know, any kind of discrimination or xenophobia or bigotry is like, we're just, we just have that impulse, you know, and it's just kind of a part of like, yeah, it's a part of the human condition that we have to be on the lookout for. Um, so, but anyway, it's a, it's a good, uh, it's a good thing. I think it's interesting that bigotry is still cropping up in the future. I, I kind of like that. It seems more like likely. And it seems more likely, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we also get a bird of prey for the first time in this episode, the Romulan warbird, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. what did you think of like that the ship? painting? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, um, it was a little cartoon-like and reminded me a little bit of Angry Birds. <laughs> <laughs> just seeing it, I couldn't, it was just kind of a flash and I couldn't tell if there was like angry eyebrows, but it mm-hmm. seemed like almost like maybe there were. Mm-hmm. And um, I liked it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was funny. And 
that was the that was something that someone on the ship referenced because they because was it it was Styles. Well, no, but someone said, "Well, how will we even know what it looks like?" That's what Kirk, Kirk says to Styles. Kirk says, He's like, "They're painted like a know. bird of prey." Right. And so, if I then I was curious before having seen it at all. I was like, "Is this going to be an actual Romulan ship, or is it going to be something else unknown?" Right. And at the time when I hadn't seen it yet, like Balance of Terror, Balance that, of Terror is the title. Um, I was yeah. like, "Well, it'd be pretty terrifying if you think it's a Romulan ship and then it's not." And then you're <laughs> like, "Well, what other enemy are we looking out for?" I think they did a good a good job of kind of building the suspense. Like we have this unknown enemy with that's sort of on par with us in terms of like, you know, the their technology, their vessel, but their best, but their technology advanced? is better than ours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was so, the thing that was a little. It, it was a little bit, um, well, because I'm so, I haven't like watched the entire series chronologically mm-hmm. and because I have other sci-fi knowledge of other things, mm-hmm. like invisibility or cloaking is totally a thing that happens. Yeah. And so it's like, uh, but this where is the are first we? time it happens and, yeah, yeah, yeah. in Star Trek. Yeah. Well, that's what I was getting. And I was like, oh no, they don't, they've <laughs> never seen that. <laughs> never seen that before. <laughs> It's like, well, that's a huge disadvantage if mm-hmm. you can't see your enemy. Mm-hmm. And so they can sort of, they have sensors that can like pick up basically what general area they're in, but they mm-hmm. can't like pinpoint it. It was interesting that there were a certain number of outposts that were gone. It was like two and three, maybe. Two and three. And it eight. was like, yeah. Four was still there. It wasn't like, I think one, two, and three. Two of those three were gone. And then Hora had attack. said that she had gotten like distress calls from like one, two, and three. And then Hansen, the guy who's in charge of Outpost Four, he says over the comms that um two and three and eight have been destroyed. Which is interesting. So we kind of don't know what happened to like five through seven. <laughs> yeah. But um but yeah. Yeah. So what did you think about like Outpost Four? Would you want that job? <laughs> no. Um, it was a very, the role was played very dramatically and it was interesting. But that's where you learn about some of the technology, like, let me mirror your screen or I don't remember, uh, the mirroring is what we do now, but like mm-hmm. visual, let me see your, I don't remember what they said exactly. But Something to the effect of, let me yeah. see what you're seeing. Yeah, yeah, and or the the um, outpost was like, well, let me show you so you can see your whatever. Anyways, right. so you get to see and you see the inside of the outpost, and it's kind of amazing that it's still there because it's like we've caught them in the middle of an attack. And right, they've gone dark. Well, I think like the first they were saying like the first blast like destroyed their shield and like cut through. You know, it got pretty close, and like one more would finish them off, and they don't have any defensive weapons left. Right, and it so it made me think then none of the other outposts have shields or like had they gotten two blasts each. Yeah. I think it probably took a couple blasts to and get so, to, to kill them off. And like, the outpost the guy was like, kills we're the a mile deep into this solid iron asteroid. And then right. it did this and everything's right. on fire. And then when Spock has the shield later in like the, you know, the little meeting. The, yeah. And it like crumbles and it crumbles. And he's like, this is the strongest substance known to man. And then it just like crumbles dramatically on the table. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. Um, what did you think about all of the like war games that the commander of the Romulan ship used? Like all of his tricks? Um, it was. It felt a little bit like the game Battleship, <laughs> like A <laughs> seven, <A7. laughs> B six. Yeah, 
like a um like you're kind of guessing yeah and even though like it was kind of not really believable in terms of like i wasn't super convinced like mm-hmm. i realize you have to suspend a lot of belief anyways sure but like even but you want in, things to be plausible right and so in just the way yeah, it just didn't seem quite as believable. Everything happened so fast, but mm-hmm. also kind of like spoken really slowly and <laughs> dramatically. But I was like, this was not this is not real time. And like I did like that they had moments that were like intense back and forth, kind of like tennis. Yeah, like, it was good. Like, there was action. Action. But then there was like that period Can you really where they move were shipped that fast. Well, yeah. And then probably. like but then like when But then there was like warping, that nine hours of like just nothing of nothing happening. You know? Where he's having a crisis thought of like i don't want all this responsibility and i'd rather be playing tennis on a beach kind of speech i think what he actually said was like i want to be on like a ship that's just going nowhere for a long time where there's not a lot of deck tennis i think is what he said which was didn't make a lot of sense to me i'm like what you don't like deck tennis or like what but uh maybe he's talking about deck tennis is what he's talking about maybe that's a metaphor for like him and the other commanders like they're just kind of playing tennis with each other that's kind of how i read it but yeah. Yeah. I thought it, that tennis line was interesting too. It kind of was like a woe is me. I don't mm-hmm. want all this responsibility. Everybody's waiting for me to make a move. My life is so difficult. <laughs> kind of like a crisis. And then Yo- Yeoman, Yeoman Rand. Come, comes in and it's like, she's like, can I make you some coffee? <laughs> it's like a moment. Cause like, yeah. are they kind of a thing? So there is, de- yes. Like, there's like, like some like kind of tension. Yeah. Them. There's a lot of romantic tension between them. Neither of them acts on it because they're way too professional. When they're about that. to die, though, there's when they're like about a, to he die. definitely kind of scoops her into his arm. Her. Like, yeah. <laughs> bracing yeah. for impact. Yeah. But like, like Bones walks in and like they all kind of like look at each other. <laughs> she like, she's like, okay, bye. Leaves. <laughs> um, and then there's that Bones versus, not Bones versus, but Bones and Kirk moment yeah. where like, yeah. They're Bones cares about Kirk. Yeah, they're good friends. So the in Star Trek, like the holy trinity is like Bones, Kirk, and Spock. And, you know, Spock and Bones are Kirk's two best buds. Like, if you notice everybody else calls him Sir or Captain, but Spock calls him Jim. Mm-hmm. You know? And McCoy just goes directly into his quarters. So he's on like friendly terms with like Spock, McCoy, and Yeoman Rand. But everybody else is sort of like a little more formal with him. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's that moment of like he's questioning all of his life decisions being on this, mm-hmm. which is pretty dramatic. I guess he's been there for nine hours and able to think about it. Yeah. Like, well, and also like, you know, they haven't engaged this enemy in like a hundred years. And then he's suddenly in this position where he has to decide whether or not to pursue this ship into the neutral zone. It is heavy. He's going to start a war. Like it's like, that'll start a war. And they've sent off to like, her is still like trying to contact Starfleet. Starfleet is like three hours away. So they can't give them a response about whether or not they can't give him an order. And he's used to like taking orders. She said it'd take three hours and they've been there nine hours. Or was that after the nine hour thing? They yeah, should that's, have gotten that's a good question. Back. I guess they should have gotten a message Three back times earlier. Right now. <laughs> yeah, but for whatever reason, Starfleet Plot was maybe hole. Starfleet had to think about it. I don't know, but um, it took them a long time to get. And they they didn't get the message back until he had already made the decision. And the message is like, do whatever you want. We trust you, which is like <laughs> great, great, thanks. Um, but he's helpful. you know he's used to like taking orders when it comes to like big intergalactic war type situations, and he doesn't have. A directive. He has to just kind of like decide. So you get that he's like having some angst. But then like McCoy's speech 
just like makes no sense. <laughs> just like, I mean, it, no kind of, it was like him trying to be a deep poetic person, which I don't know the rest <laughs> of his personality, but he, I mean, I get what he's saying. He's like, there's only one of you and I happen to like you. So don't like, so, yeah, don't destroy yourself. Right. Like don't, I guess don't self-sabotage or don't like. Yeah. That was the part that where it sort of fell apart for me. It was like this monologue and it's very dramatic and like, it's just a moment for him to kind of like wax poetic or whatever. It just sounded like they just both wanted to hear themselves talk. Like, I didn't know what they were actually talking about. Um, when he got to the end and he's like, don't kill the one they call Kirk. And I'm destroy. like, don't destroy the one they call Kirk. Um, I mean, I guess what the writers were trying to say maybe was like. I love you, man. <laughs> I love you, man. Yeah, exactly. But like, you're not allowed to say that. Right. <laughs> you're good yeah. man. Because you're too manly. <laughs> you, you can't, you can't really. Like, I love you, man. You'll get through it. this. <laughs> You can't really let it show how much you care about someone else. Right. I think also it's like, you know, I'm trying to read into it maybe more than it is, but um, it, it was kind of a moment of like, well, you know, yes, like it sucks that you're the one that is in this position where you have to make this really momentous decision that's going to affect everyone. And I get that you don't want that to be you, but guess what? It is you. Like the universe has 3 million Earth-like planets and you happen to be here at this moment. Like this is you in this moment in time. So like, you know, just like keep you alive, I guess, and and do what you would do and, and trust your instincts as you, because you're the person in the situation. I mean, I, I guess that was sort of like what they were trying to say. It didn't really totally come across, but um, that's sort of what I took out of it. I guess it was kind of a pep talk of like, it was a pep talk and I love you, man. Yeah. But it was really complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it was a little convoluted for sure. Um, but anyway, so Spock also, like, messes up in this episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was interesting. He doesn't mess up a lot. Well, and it, it played into the tension of, like, everybody thinks he did it on purpose. Right. Is he the spy because yeah. he sabotaged the ship? Right. And like, a lot kind of rides on him still. Like, you know, after shooting two weapons, all of a sudden they're overloaded. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I don't know how it works, but it's very conveniently located under Spock's desk. And he's like, I got to <laughs> fix this. It's going to take a while. There's sparks flying. And I'm like, that looks dangerous. <laughs> so Where he's like, is the fire extinguisher <laughs> on the spaceship? <laughs> Disable that portion. So fire is sparking. very bad in space. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so Spock has been trying to like fix different things. And then after he fixes that thing, he's like, I, I got to fix something else and he's like okay we'll do it quietly <laughs> yeah it's like the circuit relay or something like that yeah he's like do it quietly that, uh, that part something. cracked turbo me something. up like i thought it was so funny that like they dimmed the lights and they like shushed everybody they were like they dimmed the lights very quiet and then added these crazy pink and blue and green lights on kirk yeah to like really make him look like the Dramatic. poster mm-hmm. he's on a poster with that mm-hmm. crazy blue light shining on half of his face well, and on the other ship, too, like, um, the commander, like, shushes them. He's like, shh. <laughs> like, and uh, this this part of my notes, the heading that I wrote says, be very quiet. I'm hunting Womulus. <laughs> nice. So my question is. Because I was like, is, they can't hear you on right. the other ship. <laughs> like, space. You can't space. really hear, I can't right? tell if you have the lights on. <laughs> I know. So I was like, well, if you can't see the other ship. And then I was like, so like you couldn't have like a dance party. Yeah. Like, technically you could and you could other be ship, naked. They wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> there was no video communication unless you intentionally made it. Sent so. it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, that was interesting. And then so wait, 
where am I? My notes. I have some notes too. So this is during the nine hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, S- Spock's mess up was also what spurred them on to further action. Yes. And ended up being okay in the end. But right. he, I guess, was just like needing to lift himself up and he uses the console and sets and off an alarm. And hits a button and sets off an alarm. Yeah. That's a what signal. happens. Yeah. A signal. And then immediately turns it off, but everyone shoots him a death glare. Yeah, because like, then now they knew where they are because they, like there's a signal that he went did out it on purpose, space. right? Exactly. And then of course they do know, and then they start to maneuver, and mm-hmm. then this is where Kirk out maneuvers them, mm-hmm. and then they just sort of blindly shoot into space and happen to land every single time. Do you notice they never yeah. miss? Yeah, I know that was annoying, a little problematic. But they also like so that I did think this trick was cool, and this is directly from like that submarine movie that this episode is ripped off of. But um, the commander, like when his friend dies, the centurion. He puts his body yeah. in one of the tubes that they're ejecting of all the debris to make it look like they've been hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was clever, um, but yeah. So they do get a they do get a hit in after Spock gives their position away, and then there's which that part I didn't really understand because it's like you know I know the Romulans have invisibility, but like how come they can't see the Enterprise? This is like you know, I know they have to put they all don't their power build ships with windows. I know apparently. that's, that's what I was thinking. I was like, well, I get that they have to put all their power in invisibility and maybe then they just don't like, don't have power for anything else. But like, like as long as the cloak is on, they can't see anything else because all their power is going to the cloak. They don't really explain it. They didn't really explain They're it. They're also far enough away. Yeah. Even if they had a window. That's well, what I'm saying. Like, did they not have just like windows in the ship? <laughs> well, if you look at the Romulan ship, it just looks like a solid piece of metal. It doesn't look like you can see through any of it. Well, they were using, like, these periscope things, like a submarine. You know, all the guys in the middle were crowded around, like, the things that they were looking into. I thought it was, like, a computer screen with dots, and they were reading signals. I not- think it, I think they were, it was, like, a periscope-looking thing. It was, like, this, like, stack thing in the center of the room that they were, like, looking into. Anyway. I didn't catch that. I thought they were looking at screens, kind of like they, they were looking at the star... Data yeah, but that's the thing. Blip. It's like they saw the comet. You see a moving blip. They saw the comet. Yeah, maybe they just see blips. Maybe they can't like actually see. But there's the technology like technology was. But there's well. that part where he's like, guys, look at this, this beautiful thing in space in the darkness. When the you know he's talking, the commander is talking to the other Romulans and telling them to look at this comet. Mm-hmm. It's like this really nice moment where he's like, appreciate this beautiful thing. So how can they see the comet and not the Enterprise? <laughs> Well, like, in the same way that the Enterprise is able to see movement, but not the... Sh- well, I guess the Enterprise has... Does the Enterprise have windows? But the reason the Enterprise can't see them is that they're cloaked. Right. They can see other ships. They just can't see this one because this one's invisible. But the Romulans can't... Like, it that was the part that didn't that make sense That was a to question... Me. Okay, I guess I'm, like, pushing back. <laughs> but it also didn't make sense to me. Yeah. Where I was like, okay, the Star Trek ship is a big ship. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, they have to be close enough to fire at them. So how close is close enough? Because right. wouldn't close enough be you can see them? <laughs> Which is a great question. And we don't actually know how close they are. Like, I don't know. They keep... Yeah. Well, yeah. that is a question I have that went unanswered. And I don't think that we'll... I don't think answer. we'll ever know. Maybe someone listening, if you have the answer, let us know. How close is close enough to shoot a torpedo? Like, do you have to be able to see the other ship? Because the other ship would be able to see you. Right. Exactly. Um... Um, something about keeping their power off, I think, made them undetectable. And then the minute the power was on... It's like, it made me think that it was like two ships at night at sea. Mm-hmm. Like, you turn off all your lights and stuff. Right. Right. That's, I mean, that's clearly, like, the analog, right? Like, that's what this is based on, is that situation. And I guess in space, unless you're in a place where there is light from a star or a sun-like thing shining on you, it would be dark. 
Yeah, maybe. And so, like, we can see this shit because we need to to understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. But it's not just lit like that in space. Yeah, right. That's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how Um, you would see it in space. I noticed that when the Romulans shot them and Mm -hmm. they suddenly were warping, that they were going very slow. It did not look like warp to me. But, Mm -hmm. like, I might be thinking of Star Wars warp. No, I Or, like, the stars, like, make a long line because they're going so fast, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, that was not happening with the stars. They were just sort of floating by, and mm-hmm. that red thing was just growing bigger. That's a good question. Is like, it didn't when feel did, like they were warping. Right. When did that affect the streaky star effect? When was that first used? It might have been Star Wars. I don't know. I'll have to go and look. I know that it happens a lot in Next Generation, but I'm trying to think if that was used in the original series. I have to go back and look. Um, well, that's so it felt weird to me. I was like, they're warping or is their warp broken? So they're going like, backwards. Yeah. They're, they're running away from it. And then it's supposed to hit them, but then at the last minute it doesn't because it has a range, has a limited range. So even though it's overtaking, like it's the weapon is moving faster than they're moving away, mm-hmm. but the weapon can only get so far. Right. So it it gets them a little bit, but it only gets, you know, 22 people get radiation burns and that's it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't do any more damage than that. Um, but then. You know, where if they had been a little closer to it, it could have like really damaged the ship and taken it out of commission. Disintegrated them, yeah. right? Yeah, or damaged it to the point where they couldn't fire back or whatever. Um, but then, uh, so then we have that scene with like the weird purple gas. You know, oh yeah, where um, you know Styles turns down Spock's help because he's Cosmo like Vulcan. yeah, because he's being bigoted again. And then the minute Spock leaves, like the purple gas thing happens, and then like. Um, they both get knocked out by the gas. And so Kirk is saying like, fire, fire. And they get this moment in the comet where they can really see the ship and and get it. Mm -hmm. Um, and nothing's happening. So Spock runs back in and, um, shoots the torpedoes and, and fires just in the nick of time and like disables the Romulan ship. But in the meantime, um, Tomlinson has died from this gas. He pulls out styles from the room and saves styles and doesn't save Tomlinson, which is interesting. Um, because I guess theoretically he maybe would have had time to save one or the other. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, like, if he was a human officer, would he have saved Tomlinson? Because Tomlinson's younger, he's about to get married. You know, um, like, maybe that would have been, like, the emotive thing to do is save the kid rather than the grown-up and the kid who's about to get married and have a family. But he saves Styles, and he says at the end, he's like, I saved the ex- an experienced navigator. Like, I'm not capable of having any feelings about it. I just, you know, so he did, he's kind of very strategic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was an interesting thing because Spock, like Vulcans and Romulans are both very strategic. Mm-hmm. They're all about strategy. The only difference is like that Vulcans are, are um, peace loving and Romulans are about um, conquering. Mm-hmm. So it's like strategy applied to military and battle versus strategy applied to, being peacemakers in the galaxy mm-hmm. and like expanding civilization, which is cool. It's like, it's kind of this thing of like, you know, we all have these internal drivers, but then how we apply them in the world, we can make things better or worse. Right. So Spock saves the day. Spock saves the day. The commander self-destructs the ship out of honor, you know, but not before complimenting Kirk. He compliments Kirk. They have kind of a bro Another respect moment. I could have called you friend, right? And then he, uh, and then he blows up his ship. And I, I wonder if it's out of kind of like um, honor, like a sense of honor, or if it's more about hiding the evidence. You know? Yeah. Because, or like you don't want to because because then Kirk can't prove that they're 
you know, that they attacked or whatever. Or put them on trial or exactly. anything. They can't put like, them on trial. Right, exactly. They can't do anything they about can it. They the evidence. Yeah. So, and then, you know, the Romulans could just be like, oh, he was acting, he was a rogue agent right. or whatever. So, yeah. Um, sucks to be Tomlinson and Martine. Yeah. Sucks to be a plot point. Um, <laughs> Styles really messed that up out of his bigotry. He's the reason Tomlinson died. And that's what happens when you're a bigot. People die on their wedding days. So don't be bigoted, people. <laughs> Lesson learned. <laughs> Think of Tomlinson. Um, yeah. So then, you know, we get the message finally with Starfleet giving everybody the thumbs up, which is nice because nobody's going to be court-martialed. So that's good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, and then there's the ending. And, and uh, Tomlinson's widow, you know, hugs Kirk and, and he consoles her and they have this that line that we talked about. You know, or it doesn't make any sense, we but we both have to know there was a reason. And she says, I'm all right. And she kind of stoically pulls herself together and leaves. And um, I like the way the episode ends because it ends with Kirk walking through the hallways and you see his face and he's just very kind of grave and serious and Captain Lee. And then you have like the other people in the background and they're just going about their lives, like laughing, you know, arm in arm. And so you really get a sense of like the weight of, you know, command is on his weighing heavily on his shoulders because he's had to like console the widow and that's part of his job and um usually at the end of a episode of star trek you wouldn't know this because you haven't watched a lot of them but usually they end on the bridge and like kirk will like crack a joke with like spock or mccoy you know the close one exactly (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah something like anyone for a game of battleship (laughs) like the credits will roll or whatever like that's usually how it goes and um there was no quip there's no goofy joke like it it ends in a serious way which i thought was cool and appropriate for like the tone of the episode i really like this episode a lot personally um i think it's one of the better episodes in the original series um i think you know we owe the writer a lot for expanding you know star trek in the world of star trek when Paul Schneider first created the Romulans, and he's the writer, he wanted to conceive them as like Romans, if the Roman Empire had evolved like to this modern century, what would it be like? So that was his original kind of idea for them. Um, and then, you know, he actually wrote two episodes of Star Trek. He wrote this episode, and he wrote an episode called The Squire of Gothos. Well, he also wrote an episode of the animated series, but two of the original series episode this one and one called the squire of gothos and in the squire of gothos there's this kind of q character do you know about q uh maybe he's he's a really beloved kind of godlike character in next generation who just constantly likes to mess with humans especially mm-hmm. picard and he's a very popular character in the series and squire of gothos has a character who's very similar to q and is kind of a precursor to q so you know, Paul Schneider is responsible for like a lot of really cool things in the Star Trek universe. He definitely left his mark on it. Um, he also collaborated frequently with his wife, Margaret Schneider, but I don't know that she's, I don't think she's credited on this episode, but they wrote together a lot. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And he wrote for a lot of television, like a lot of series. Um, so yeah. But I do love, like, there's a lot of things established in this ep- in this episode, like the espionage thing, the whole idea of Romulan spies, gets a lot of attention in other series. Um, you get this idea of the Tal Shiar, which is um, like Vulcan, or their, uh, sorry, Romulan, like, secret police kind of, and that's goes into a lot. Um, 
another thing I wanted to mention about this episode, which is Mark Leonard, who is the actor who plays the commander of the Romulan ship. Oh, he was a really cool actor, and he actually did such a good job that they brought him back in later episodes as Ambassador Sarek, who is Spock's dad. Ah, yeah, and he got he was in a lot of episodes, and also he was in Star Trek three, four, and six, the films. Um, he Mark Leonard also got to play Sarek in a uh, two episodes of Next Generation, and. Um, also an episode episode of the um, animated series. Um, and in Star Trek, the motion picture, which is the first Star Trek movie, he played the first Klingon that has uh, the forehead ridges. We had some Klingons in the original series, but in the movie, suddenly they had these forehead ridges, which are really scary and cool. Mm-hmm. And he was like the first Klingon that you see on screen with the forehead ridges, which is cool. Um, he's the captain of the IKS Amar and uh, he also has an appearance in, oh, his last, his last Star Trek appearance was in the TNG episode Unification 1. Um, so he definitely went on to be a big part of the Star Trek world, which is cool. That is cool. And like Leonard Nimoy, who plays Spock, Mark Leonard was the son of Jewish immigrants. Um, so his parents were from Russia, but he grew up in Michigan and he graduated high school at the age of 16 he also was a World War II veteran. So, nice. you know, he probably had a lot to pull from, you know, in this episode. Um, but he was a paratrooper, so he was in Europe. And um, and then he was cast as Balthazar, who was, you probably know this, Bible quiz, who was Balthazar. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. Which one movie? Of the, one of the three wise men. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he was one of the three wise men. And I'm quizzing Natalie because she grew up Baptist, and Baptists know more about the Bible than anybody. <laughs> so I just figured you would know that. I was but, like, I know the name, but I'm like, which <laughs> book of the Bible am I pulling from? Yeah. So um, one of the three wise men in uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told, that big biblical epic movie. He was which in I that. I have not seen Which actually. I haven't seen either. And uh, I hear it's a little cheesy, but, you know, probably also very impressive. Anyway, so he moves to L.A., and then right after moving to L.A., like a month later, he was given this role. Um, in Star Trek, and this is his first Star Trek role. He was also cast in a lot of other TV shows during that time, including Gunsmoke, Mission Impossible, lots of he other looks shows. looks really familiar. Yeah, he's been in everything. Um, he continued to act regularly in many television shows throughout the 70s, and in the 80s and 90s, he did, like, voiceover work mainly for, like, narration and commentary and, like, commercials and things like that. Um, he also, Anything I would know. You know, I think it was, like, one of those watch companies like Rolex or something. He did like the voice. He was like the narration for a bunch of Rolex ads, I think. Um, Things like that. Um, And then in the 80s and 90s, he also taught acting and he ended up dying of multiple myeloma, which is a cancer of plasma cells. Um, And he died at the age of 72. And the day he died was the day that Star Trek First Contact, that movie, um, opened in the U.S., which is interesting. And he remains... I think the only actor to play a Romulan Vulcan and a Klingon in Star Trek. He was the first to do that anyway, which is cool. It is cool. Yeah. I liked this episode. This episode was interesting to me. Um, I liked the kind of like parallel between Kirk and the commander as like the sort of twin brothers Mm -hmm. sort of fighting. Um, I like that even though they're at war 
you know, and even though one of them ultimately kills the other one, they're still more alike than different. And they have this kind of respect and all that. They didn't is, actually kill the other one. That was a self Right, myth. right, right, right. True. Good point. But they didn't both survive. Right. Only one of them survived the conflict. So they kept making strategy comments about each other. Yeah. They were both very impressed with each other. I won't underestimate <laughs> the other. I won't right. make that mistake twice. Yeah, exactly. Like, if he were I, he would not make that mistake twice. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, they are like two sides to the same coin. Well, and it's interesting, the whole title, like Balance of Terror, sort of suggests, you know, balance, like these two equal and opposing forces, mm-hmm. um, which are both these two captains and also these two cultures, like that they're these two sides of the coin and they have to be these equally balanced scales. And when one of them tips a little, that's bad for everybody. Yeah. So it's an interesting setup. Um, also, you know, we start the episode not knowing anything about Romulans. We don't know what they look like. We know nothing about the culture. There's all this prejudice. And by the end of the episode, we know that they're like very similar to humans and Vulcans and that Kirk and the commander really could have been friends in another reality. So they're this other side of a coin. Um, so I don't know. I think it's all just a really interesting conversation to have about how the episode deals with that othering thing and how it unpacks it as well and everybody can just think on that on their own but i really do love this episode i think it's i think it's a good one i think the battleship thing works well um it's suspenseful we get mark leonard on screen for the first time we get romulans for the first time warbirds for the first time cloaking device for the first time so lots of star trek first um but yeah I mean, there's action, and I feel like that is one of the strengths of Star Trek is that you're, the whole point is that it's an action series taking place in space. Um, I, I liked the technology references and seeing, I mean, as painful as it is to see early, like, special effects, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting to see where a lot of our references come from. Mm-hmm. And I was a little bit annoyed by all the beeps and boops because <laughs> they're like just kind of annoying after a while. Like that's all naval noise. Really? So, yeah. All of that comes from like, you they're know, sort of painful actual Navy ships and stuff like that. That's what it's all based on. I get used to it. I honestly, I could have that as like white noise in the background and I would probably go to go to sleep easier. Um, <laughs> I did like the, all the different, styles like hairstyle i thought that was interesting although it's not mm-hmm. very practical mm-hmm. because like we were talking about it earlier and i was like couldn't you just have like fancy designs on your uniform perhaps instead of like fancy hair because hair would take a long time unless it's a wig and you just pull it on well they are wigs for sure <laughs> but but i don't know if they're supposed to be like in the story i think they're supposed to be the real hair in the story but they are wigs in real life like a right. has a wig on everybody has a wig all these actors have wigs on um it is interesting. In Next Generation, they personalize the uniforms a little more. Like, Worf gets, like, a Klingon kind of sash thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, different characters have different personalized things about their uniforms that, like, represent their culture or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't really that in the original series. Ahura does have these really cool green earrings, mm-hmm. if you noticed. But um, in general, there's not really, you know, everybody's just wearing the uniform. So I think it's, like, a way to kind of show a little personality. A thing I didn't like was how blind it felt. Like, mm-hmm. everybody, like, ships can't see each other. You mm-hmm. can't see what's going on. There's not actually a window. You can't just look out and see, well, what, well, what, what can I see out of the window? Yeah. Like, you're just sort of flying blind. I thought that part was could have been better done 
in that it could have been like better explained. You know, it's, it's, you really had to kind of suspend belief. I thought it worked ultimately. Like it was suspenseful yeah, it was and fine. fine, but, but yeah, they could have done a better job of just like but e- explaining seen, the, the technology a little better. Right. And I think it's just like how the, the sci-fi universes have come so far since then that I'm just used to seeing a progression quote unquote mm-hmm. in technology that like, Oh Yeah. Like your entire ship is windows. <laughs> well, know, and and I think it's funny because now with like the current Star Trek shows, they have to work so hard to make sure that the worlds that they build are consistent with all of the world building that's been done before. Right. That it all makes sense. You know, when they use techno babble and they like come up with, you know, these, you know, sciencey sounding words, like they have somebody on staff that they're checking with to make sure that like the theoretical science of what they're talking about is plausible. Right. Like even if it's not something that has been discovered or invented, you know, that it's something that could theoretically work. And they, they spend a lot of time coming up with like the how, like how this, how this drive or whatever, this spore drive and discovery, like how it would work. Right. Um, which I really appreciate. I think that adds like a whole other layer to the show that makes it like feel more believable and something else you can get nerdy about if you're like into technology. Yeah. Um, I liked how, but they weren't really doing that at this, in this, right. I mean, they, they didn't know, they didn't know if they'd get another season. Right. You know, I liked how Kirk was diplomatic, but firm with his crew mm-hmm. when it came to bigotry and mm-hmm. that he, didn't just jump and question Spock that Mm -hmm. he um, like the way he went about it. I liked the way he went about it. Interesting. He's a really good captain in this episode. And um, I also liked how the one person that everybody's questioning is also the person that saves the day. Right. Um, Right. And there were a couple different moments where, Su- so there were, where someone said I agree. So mm-hmm. Sulu agreed with Styles, and Styles was like, "But there could be a Romulan spy on board." Right, right. And Sulu's like, "Yeah, I agree. We should keep up our security." Mm-hmm. And then later in the briefing room, when they're you know the shield is crack like folding in their hands or whatever, mm-hmm. um, Spock agrees. Spock agrees with Styles, mm-hmm. and so um, it was just a moment of like for Stott to be Stott like, okay, so. I mean, it makes sense for Spock to agree because Spock doesn't have any ego at this point. Like, he, if that's he's just like logical, thing. yeah, he's just yeah. logical. Mm-hmm. And so, but it like is like blows Styles' mind, kind right? Of like, right. really, right? Exactly. <laughs> but yeah. like, so that's just interesting too. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the two characters that they set up as being the ones who, um, you know, are other who poke a hole be. in, yeah, who poke a hole in Styles' expectations of mm-hmm. what's going to happen are Sulu and Spock. Right. Yeah. Which kind of lends a lot of credence to that theory about it being an analog for Japanese, you know, conflicts. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I thought all that was really well done. I, I really like Kirk in this episode. I don't love Kirk in every episode of Star Trek and some episodes he comes off as like arrogant or just like a cowboy or just like a ladies man. But in this episode, he's a really good captain. He's totally there for everybody on the ship. Um, he makes hard decisions. He's also human. Like, right. he he admits his own vulnerabilities, and he listens to his officers, even the ones who— Question his authority. Right, even the ones who question his authority. He still says, I called this meeting for opinions. Like, I want to know what you think. But he also calls them out when they're being disrespectful and 
bigoted. Not bigots. And, yeah. So I just thought it was a great episode all around. It really makes you like Kirk, you know? Yeah. So. And also like the light strategically in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He has, he has pretty eyes. He, has pretty eyes. <laughs> he does have pretty eyes. Um, but then like in his quarters or whatever, when he was doing his little like, what was me monologue? Mm-hmm. Like they use a very soft lens. Yeah. Well, that's the softer <laughs> side, Natalie. <laughs> the softer side of the captain. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you want to make him some coffee? <laughs> Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to make him some coffee? Well, um, I think that's really all there is that we can talk about this about this episode. Do you have any final thoughts about the episode? Anything else you mm-hmm. want to throw I'll in probably there? think of five things after we stop. But Yeah, well, that's all right. That's you can let me know. Now. I can add them to the notes section if okay. you think of something else. Cool. Um, what was your song pick for this episode? So it's probably because I had just talked about it the other day, but as I was thinking through different scenes of the episode – um, Wreck of the Day by Anna Nalik came mm-hmm. up because of specific references in the song. Um, and this was specifically when they were like backing up at warp speed, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> driving away from the wreck of the day and the lights always red in the rear view. Perfect. I know. And I was like, that's the opening line. Perfect. And desperately close to a coffin of hope. I cheat destiny just to be near you. It's great. If this is giving up, then I'm giving up. If this is giving up, then I'm giving up on love. That's great. I know. So I was like, <laughs> this is so perfect. Nailed it. So yay. Excellent. Excellent. Um, yeah. So. Well, I picked um, a song called Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. It is a title track from the 1985 Dire Straits album of the same name. It was originally inspired by the Falkland War, um, which was a 10-week undeclared war between Argentina and the UK. Um, 907 people died in that war, including 649 Argentinians, 255 British servicemen, and three female Falkland Island civilians. The conflict remains one of, and this is, I'm just quoting the Wikipedia page here, um, remains one of the largest air-naval combat operations between modern forces since the end of the Second World War. So I thought that was like an appropriate, you know, background. Um, And the lyrics are really incredible for the song i took the time to kind of read through them and you know you can you can hear it as an anti-war song and it definitely is that but it's more than that because it's also this song it's from the perspective of a dying soldier and it's a song that like honors the camaraderie between soldiers um even if the soldiers are on other sides like it's you know it's about how war is seemingly meaningless but it's also about the dignity of the soldiers that are involved in those conflicts. And I think that that's a really important distinction to make. It's kind of amazing that, um, you know, they were able to pack all that into like this one song, but it, it really, I feel like it gets it right. Um, so that's a song that I picked for this episode. Cause I thought it was apropos, pretty on point, pretty on point. Um, so yeah. And then we also get a Natalie song for our Spotify playlist. What Natalie song are you gracing us with? I decided that Dreamwalker was most appropriate. Cool. Because it's about meeting people in the dark in your dreams that you're not really would rather not meet. Mm. And the kind of creepy factor of that. Um cool. And that's from your uh is it an EP through the fog? Yeah. Your EP? EP through the fog. Cool. And which is available, I should point out to our listeners on vinyl. It is. <laughs> It's about to be available on a special edition vinyl at some point in the near future. And uh, where can we purchase all of our Natalie Price fangirl merchandise? 
on my website on Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably just purchased through messaging me. <laughs> awesome. I'm most responsive on Instagram. Sounds good. She's on Instagram quite a lot. Um, her website is natpricemusic.com. That's N-A-T-P-R-I-C-E music.com. And uh, every Monday night and occasionally Saturday morning, she goes live with a, a different guest at 10 o'clock p.m. Central Time. On or sa- Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Or Saturday morning at 10 a.m. So it's either at 10 o'clock p.m. on Monday night or 10 o'clock a.m. on Saturday morning. Um, that's Central Time. And that's on Instagram Live, which is at, at Nat Price Music. Um, or also on YouTube, as she was saying, and uh, on Facebook and Twitch. And she does a little mini interview with her guests. She does outrageous questions, and uh, there is a song swap at the end of the at the end of the episode. So she really packs in a lot. And the name of the series is Twenty at Ten. Twenty at Ten with Nat. So um, you can check out her recent episodes of that talk show. I highly recommend it. Um, well, and also you've been in the studio a bunch, a bunch lately with a couple different projects. I know you just finished. You just wrapped up work on a full length record. That Mary Bragg produced yes. in Nashville. Yes, and that is not released, and we don't have a we don't have a release date yet. So I don't want to tease everybody with that. But she has been in the studio making some incredible stuff. Also, you got this cool thing. Is it a grant? What is it? That oh, that I'm going back to record. Yeah, tell I'm, us about uh, that. I was selected to be in the Austin develop the artist development program of the Austin Music Foundation. Cool, and they do a lot of. They create a lot of resources for artists in Austin, um, panels and discussions and um, artist consultations and things. Cool. So every year they take four to six artists and they help kind of, it's like specialized consultation for each artist. And mm-hmm. so I'm one of those artists this year and they're doing a compilation album. And so each of us will record t- um, two songs to be on that compilation album. Mm-hmm. So I will be in the studio when I get back to Austin. Mm-hmm. And are you recording like one song, two songs, three songs? Two Supposedly songs. two. We'll see. Cool. cool. We'll see how this goes. I feel like I'm kind of walking in blind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. You're going in directly after you get back from Ireland. Yes. <laughs> It'll be a little much. bit of jet lag, but it's easier going the other way. True. So well, hopefully. So yeah, everybody wish her luck. And uh, thanks for joining us, Natalie. Thanks for having me. <laughs> This has been another strange new episode of Troubadours on Trek. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever listening platform you use and head on over to patreon.com slash Grace Pettis to join the crew. This is your host, Grace Pettis, giving her all she's got, beaming out. See you at the next Shore Leave. Pretty boys with plenty charm.